Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool's ready. We're going to be talking a lot about the Supreme Court again today. We're brought to you by Gabby. Just take a couple of minutes online and find out if you can save, and you probably will be able to save and find out how much on your car insurance or your homeowner's insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash Martini. More on them in just a moment. And Jim, must be interesting being Mitt Romney. Uh, Earlier this year, he was the first uh, person ever to vote for the impeachment, the conviction of a president of of his own party. And now he's decided he will support going forward with the Supreme Court nominee. So the whiplash on the Democratic side is interesting to see. Romney now makes 51 votes for this, by the way, which means they won't even need Mike Pence to move the process forward. Obviously, we still need a nominee to consider, but uh, it appears that Mitch McConnell's admonition to keep the powder dry over the weekend uh, was listened to by everyone except Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. So Mitch has the votes. Uh, The process will go forward. And now, of course, you have liberals on Twitter uh, attacking Mitt Romney, calling him mittens, attacking Mormonism. And so everything you'd expect on a day like today. How are you? Yeah. You know, Greg, we just came around, you know, mid morning or so. Uh, We're taping this a little bit before noon. And just in the last hour, they said the nation's emergency rooms are full of people who have pulled muscles changing their opinions of Mitt Romney that quickly. You really got to stretch, people. We, we've seen it with the hamstrings all across the NFL. If you're going to make a sudden move in one direction or another uh, in a result of some sort of political development, make sure you're stretched out. You know, pull, make, you don't want to pull a hamstring or, or something like that. Um, look, I think you can, you know, it, it's interesting how many people are like who, who see this and who immediately say, oh, he's worried about re-election. You know, you know Mitt Romney's like 70, right? Yeah. I know that's a young that's a young man these days, but uh, you know, particularly considering the age of the Speaker of the House, the Democratic nominee, the President, and such, the uh, Senate Majority Leader. I think this is what Mitt Romney genuinely thinks. I think he looked at what Trump was accused of in the impeachment, concluded that he was guilty, concluded the President should be held accountable. He knew it wasn't going to make make him very popular or win him many friends, but he went and he did this when Trump uh, when when Romney marched in a Black Lives Matter protest uh, or George Floyd protest shortly after the, uh, in early May. I think he did it because he genuinely believed it was the right thing. I don't think there's a great deal of complicated political calculations going on in the mind of Mitt Romney. And as we laid out yesterday, under the Constitution, the Constitution does not have a provision that says the president is allowed to nominate Supreme Court justices unless the dying wish of the previous justice was that it be the same party or something like that. That, 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 that. There's not in there. There, there, you know, there isn't, the Constitution doesn't say anything about, well, not if it's too close to an election or, or, uh, or any other restriction like that. It doesn't say anything about you can't do it in a lame duck. It just says the president does this and the Senate advises and consents. So the Senate has, uh, to do this, you need 51 votes to confirm the justice or you need 50 votes and for the vice president to come in and break a tie. That's the way it works. You could argue about whether the, it's wiser politically to wait or uh, if this is consistent about uh, the Merrick Garland situation. But in the end, there's nothing that says the president can't do this and there's nothing that says the Senate can't have a vote. And I believe Mitt Romney has made the correct decision on this. Um, the idea that, because you know, at that point you're turning into this idea that, well, out of fairness, we shouldn't follow the Constitution. That's not a very good way of uh, thinking about things. If you want to change the rules, 
change the Constitution. That's, uh, that is the ultimate authority for everyone's participation in the U.S. government system. So well, I think it's the right choice. I think it's, you know, uh, I think this will probably um, not necessarily win back Mitt Romney friends. I've already seen some people saying, well, he's only saying he's willing to vote for the nomination to proceed. He's not voting to confirm. Yeah, he shouldn't. He shouldn't say I'm going to vote for whoever the president nominates. Now, if, as everyone suspects, you know, as of this morning, the, the buzz is that Amy Comey Barrett is the pick. Um, there's a little bit less interest or, or a little bit less buzz around Barbara Lagoa. I, I think either one of those is in line with Mitt Romney's idea of what a good Supreme Court justice ought to be. I think he's very likely to vote for the president's uh, nominee. We're going to have to see how it goes. You could always have the nominee melt down in a confirmation hearing. I suspect Senate Democrats will come at the nominee as hard or even harder than they went after Brett Kavanaugh. This is just the way things operate now in Washington. But I suspect that when push comes to shove, you're going to have at least 50 votes, probably 51. And I don't know how Joe Manchin's going to vote. Joe Manchin voted for Brett Kavanaugh. He's not close to election day, so he may not vote for it this time around. We will see how it shakes out. But uh, I think it is very likely that by election day, there is a new confirmed Supreme Court justice who's been nominated by President Trump. Yeah, it's been fun to watch and interesting to watch uh, the Republicans who are in tough races for re-election and how they've reacted to this. Well, we mentioned Susan Collins saying, I don't want anything to do with the process uh, this close to an election. Cory Gardner was a little more circumspect, but ultimately he said, uh, look, this is this is the job. This is the role. There's uh, the Constitution calls for the president to do this, and I will consider the nominee. Uh, and then you had folks like Tom Tillis and Martha McSally going, yes, yes, please bring this forward. Absolutely. This is going to give me my best chance perhaps to actually be reelected. So some senators asking, is there a drive through lane option? <laughs> Watching the public on this is also a little bit interesting. There was a snap poll released Saturday by YouGov, which said that 51% of voters believe Trump should not nominate another justice this year, while 42% said he should. Uh, 48% believe the Senate should not confirm a nominee this year. 45% said the Senate should. But just a few days earlier, in a national poll from the Marquette University Law School, which probably does some of the best polling of uh, political races in Wisconsin, found very different responses, Jim. It's amazing what happens when it's hypothetical. Uh, 67% of respondents believe the confirmation should proceed in 2020. 32% said the chamber should hold off. This was conducted between September 8th to September 15th. She died on the 18th. 68% of Republicans, 63% of Democrats, 71% of independents said the process should go forward regardless of the fact that it's close to the election. So what do you make of the uh, real views of the public and then what they, what they think once the circumstances are specified? I suppose if you wanted to argue that the public was not practicing situational ethics, because a lot of ideas are different once they, once they become reality. Yeah. A lot of things are you know, hypothetical versus reality. Hypothetically, I'm going to stay on my diet, Greg. Reality is going to be a lot tougher. One thing that kind of just jumps out about that, though, it's interesting. At the heart of a lot of these judicial fights we've seen over recent years is each party thinking of a particular seat as theirs. I made yes, said yesterday that I, I think Merrick Garland probably, they should, Senate Republicans should have held hearings. Uh, should have subjected him to questions, and when time came to vote, say, you know what, Merrick Garland is just not the kind of judge I want to have on the Supreme Court. He's qualified, he's bright, but I just think he's not going to rule the way I want. We have established the precedent by John Roberts and by Samuel Alito from our Senate co Democratic colleagues. If we don't think he's going to vote the way we want, that's sufficient reason to vote against a nominee. So I'm voting no. And then you would have gone, you know, 
Obama could have nominated somebody else and he could, you know, my guess is the process would have continued itself until the presidential election. Trump wins, Trump nominates Neil Gorsuch. Uh, there's more that there's a Senate majority for Republicans and things would have shaken out pretty much the way they did. The also the other thing is that look, when Antonin Scalia died, it was a shock to conservatives who always he was he was the favorite justice of many conservatives, and the idea that you're going to replace him with Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland was you know amongst the universe of Democrat potential Democratic selections to the Supreme Court, not terribly lefty. He, he was centrist, and you can't see I'm making air quotes as I say that. But it's not necessarily you know, switching out Antonin Scalia for Merrick Garland was going to move the court to the left significantly. This is why Democrats are running around with their hair on fire over this, because any Trump nominee is going to move the court significantly to the right. One of the funnier suggestions I have seen, Greg, is that Trump should nominate Merrick Garland, because as a relative centrist, he would actually move the court to the right, <laughs> even though less, less to the right than, say, Amy Comey Barrett or Barbara Lagoa. But you know, what are Democrats going to say? Merrick Garland's not qualified? Yeah, obviously spent a couple of years insisting he was perfectly qualified. Look, Neither party has ownership over a particular uh, seat. You can argue probably it's good for the country to have a relative even split. But one of the things I would note is that every time we believe that there's a conservative majority, uh, you know, Senator Day O'Connor steps down, uh, Rehnquist dies, and you have this you know, almost double nomination process in which you have John Roberts and Samuel Alito uh, nominated in quick succession. Uh, but the interesting thing happened is that Anthony Kennedy, who had been seen as part of the conservative bloc, sh started shifting to the middle. Or you might argue that the court's center of gravity shifted to the right. But either way, Kennedy stopped being the reliable conservative, perceived as a, a reliable conservative vote. Kennedy steps down, uh, uh, Kavanaugh steps in, and now the interesting perception is whether John Roberts is a reliable vote for the right on these sorts of things. Um, now, you might argue that overall the center of gravity is slowly shifting towards the right, but there's always going to be a swing vote. And as you know, for the last you know, couple, five or six decades, it seems, the swing vote has been nominated by a Republican. So first of all, if Democrats wonder why Republicans are so mad about this, this is one of the things. Like, you guys got David Souter. You don't realize you got that bonus pick that you weren't supposed to get. Uh, people would argue you got Kennedy and you got Sandra Day O'Connor, who did not turn out to be, uh, you know, Scalia clones. So the idea that, like, look, this, there's always a certain amount of uncertainty to this process. We could be going through this entire thing, and one of Trump's picks could end up being less conservative or originalist or, or predictable, shall we say, than everyone expects. This is the nature of the judicial process. And, of course, there are a whole bunch of Democrats who say, let's blow it all up and just, uh, uh, you know, scrap the court or, or scrap the court, pack the court, or just, you know, blow up the judicial branch. Oh, it's absolutely maddening. I mean, you can go back to the Eisenhower years for, you know, just disastrous Supreme Court picks. I mean, he, he put a lot of the Warren court on, which uh, moved the court ridiculously far to the left. Uh, most of Nixon's picks uh, moved the court to the left, with the exception of Rehnquist, and, and you might make a partial argument for Warren Berger. And then there's uh, the, the three that you mentioned, uh, O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter, which were not exactly reliable conservatives. And then among Democrats, I don't think they've had one that didn't turn out to be the the staunch liberal that they thought since Wizard White, who was appointed by Kennedy. So, I mean, everybody else has been an absolute lockstep liberal. But uh, I, I love your point about how some sides and some partisans here think the seat belongs to them. Do you remember when Sandra Day O'Connor initially announced that she was stepping down and Chuck Schumer sprinted to the press room to announce that Bush had to nominate a moderate because O'Connor was a moderate and you can't change the balance of the court? Yes, you can. <laughs> For a lot of people in politics, that's the goal. <laughs> that's what they wake up every morning wanting to do. 
the government was smaller and it wasn't intruding into every ounce of our lives, this wouldn't be the issue that it is. And of course, the, the left wants the courts to be uh, another legislative uh, stamp of approval for their agenda. They've basically said that. In fact, we'll talk about that in our next martini too. But first, we're going to talk about Gabby, because while the left wants to uh, grow government with your money, Gabby wants you to keep your money. Uh, and when you've had the same car insurance or homeowner's insurance for years, you kind of get trapped into paying your premiums and not thinking about it. And it makes it really easy to overpay and not even realize it. Uh, Jim, I know that uh, in the time that we've done this podcast over the years, uh, you and I have each bought homes. And so you lock that in, you get your mortgage set up, uh, you get your homeowner's uh, rate set up, and you just kind of set it and forget it. And sometimes things change, especially if you have claims. Uh, would it still be advantageous to keep that insurance? Or is there a better policy out there for the coverage that you're getting? So don't worry anymore about having to overpay or wondering if you're overpaying. Stop overpaying for car and homeowner's insurance and see about getting a lower rate for the exact same coverage you already have, thanks to Gabby. Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you an apples-to-apples -apples comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers. We're talking companies like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers. You just link your current insurance, and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have. Gabby customers save $825 per year on average, and if they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so you can relax knowing you have the best rate that is out there, and they will never sell your information, so no more annoying spam or robocalls. They say it takes a couple of minutes to get this done. It really is that simple. You just go, you put in your address, you put in your age, depending on which insurance you're, you're comparing. Uh, you put in very simple information that you're definitely going to know off the top of your head. And then you link to your current insurance policy and boom, they have the whole list there for you of what other people are offering for the exact same coverage. It could not be easier. And it could not be better for your wallet if there are significant savings to be found. We found out that uh, we're good with what we have, but that gives a lot of peace of mind too. So it's totally free to check your rate. There's no obligation at all. Take a couple of minutes, just a few minutes right now, and stop overpaying on your car and home insurance. Go to Gabby.com slash martini. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash martini. Gabby.com slash martini. All right, Jim, the left is uh, approaching this uh, Supreme Court nomination with all the calmness and, and sober judgment that we've come to expect from the left during Supreme Court fights. Now their hair's on fire, uh, like you mentioned, because it could shift the court to the right. And therefore, they are now saying, if you do this, we're going to do what we were threatening to do even before all this happened, which is pack the court. And uh, who better to lead this charge, Jim? Then Obama and Clinton people. Uh, first, you have Dan Pfeiffer. He was a communications director in the Obama White House for a while. He writes, it is critical that Democrats keep expansion as a credible threat in the coming fight over the Ginsburg seat. It's some of our only leverage. Yes, it is. We can only do that if we win the message war with Republicans over expansion. I have been a supporter of court expansion since the Republicans jammed Brett Kavanaugh on the court and have spent the last several months working with Take Back the Court, the leading advocate for court expansion. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about the issue and arguing with people about the merits for expansion. Based on that experience, here is some message guidance for the fight to come. And he talks about the need to demystify expansion. There's been little to no discussion of changing the makeup of the court for 80 years, so most people in American politics know nothing of the history or the law. 
And then he goes into some other issues to try and make his case. Also, Brian Fallon, who's always very rational, uh, communications director for the Hillary Clinton campaign, with a couple of tweets. He says, any Supreme Court with a Trump justice confirmed to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat at this point in the calendar would be fundamentally illegitimate. And Democrats must be prepared to act accordingly. And then he gives a four-step playbook. Number one, oppose Trump's nominee prior to the election, invoking the GOP's own rule from 2016. Two, defeat Trump. Three, keep seat open until Biden takes office. Four, if GOP rams Trump pick through anyway, add seats to the court. This is the play. There is no other play. So, Jim, this has gone from the fringe to the mainstream, even though Ruth Bader Ginsburg made it perfectly clear she thought court packing was a terrible idea. Yeah, I'm going to, in the first part of that argument there, Greg, I'm going to quote not Alexander Hamilton, but um, the musical Alexander Hamilton, you don't have the votes. You don't have the votes. You're going to need congressional approval and you don't have the votes. Um, you, you can try. You can scream and yell. But, you know, if you got 50 or 51 votes, that's, this, this, this nominee sails through. So uh, that first for part of your plan, you got to – it's kind of like the, the South Park underwear gnome plan with a bunch of questions in step two. Um, second thing that comes to mind there. I am fairly confident that every listener to this podcast, even if you're as old as Joe Biden, even if you're as old as Mitch McConnell, even if you're as old as Nancy Pelosi, more than 80 years, in your entire lifetime, the Supreme Court has had nine justices. Do you know why the Supreme Court, other than times there's been a vacancy, do you know why the Supreme Court has had nine Because it's had nine justices since for the last 151 years. Okay. Uh, the last real fight was in 1969. There was a Judiciary Act. So you fundamentally go, can Congress do this? Well, okay. So Congress can do this by passing legislation. Uh, Congress decides how many people are on the Supreme Court. However, nobody's tried to really make any serious effort of this since uh, 1869, with one glaring exception, Franklin Roosevelt. He tried to expand the membership of the Supreme Court. He was reelected in one of his times, and he said, I want to put, add one justice to the court for each justice over the age of 70 for a maximum of six additional justices. Now look, he had a lot of fights with the Supreme Court. You had a whole bunch of New Deal legislation. The court had said, no, no, sorry, that violates the Constitution. But Franklin Roosevelt did not win this fight. In fact, he lost it quite badly. A whole bunch of people who liked Franklin Roosevelt saw this as overstepping his bound, the bounds of the powers of the presidency. They saw this as um, going outside, going beyond checks and balances. This was if you're not happy with the Supreme Court, I'm just going to add enough justices until I can get what I want. The plan was widely and vehemently criticized, right? You know, Roosevelt lost a lot of his political support for going in this direction. So this is the one time anybody's tried to do this in 151 years, and it didn't go well, right? People like a predictable, stable political system with consistent checks and balances. The whole point of having a constitution is that the rules and laws are written down. There's a little bit of room for interpretation within them, but basically who gets to do what is like really at the core of this. So the idea that a president who's frustrated by Supreme Court decisions can just keep adding justices because they have a majority in both houses of Congress and that's all they need to pass through this legislation. I tried to make this argument with somebody on Twitter yesterday. If Democrats are dumb enough to do this, I actually, I'm not certain they are. It sounds like there's about half the Senate Democrats realize this could be every time you change the rules to expand the power of your side when you're in the majority, 
At some point, the electorate's going to turn against you. I know everybody's convinced that this is our new permanent majority, and James Carville wrote his book about 40 more years. He wrote it in 2009. <laughs> within a year, Republicans won back the House. Within five years, Republicans won back the Senate. And within seven years, Republicans had won back the presidency. There are no permanent majorities in American politics. Sooner or later, your side is going to screw up. Sooner or later, the other guys are going to get their act together, and you're going to lose. And all these rule changes that you put into effect that you were absolutely convinced were never going to work against you end up working against you. Ask Harry Reid how eliminating the filibuster for lower court judicial nominations worked for him. Mitch McConnell's favorite phrase is, there is there's no lesson in the second kick from a mule. And yet, these people need to be kicked over and over again. I'm talking metaphorically. I'm not saying go out and kick them. I'm just saying that no matter how many times expanding their power uh, ends up blowing up in their face, there's always some people who seem convinced, no, 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 this time we're going to expand the power because this time we're going to win the majority. We're going to have control of the levers of government, and it's never going to change, except it always does. And as I said, look, you guys want to expand the court to you know, 11 justices or whatever, fine, fine. But if you guys do this, the next time Republicans have the presidency in the Senate, we are going to start confirming judicial nominations by the busload until they have to hold the hearings in MCI Center. Actually, it's Capital One Arena now, but if you're a certain age, it's always MCI Center. Point being, you know, we, you, if you guys want to play this game, we can play this game. You're not going to have the White House forever. You're not going to have the Senate majority forever. I know you're totally convinced, like, oh, we're going to, we're going to make D.C. a state, and we're going to make Puerto Rico a state, and we're going to win Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard it all before. <laughs> After Bush left the presidency and Obama beat McCain, it was supposed to be the permanent Democratic majority. The Republicans were this losing, this you know, uh, regional rump party that was no longer relevant to American politics. And then within two years, it all started falling apart for them. Like, you know, what happens is the old guys you don't like disappear from the stage and new guys show up. The Tea Party, right? All these Iraq war veterans came back. All of a sudden, there are different guys for the faces of the opposition and they end up winning races. Please believe me, Democrats. Please listen to this. Please study history. Although I guess if they studied history, Greg, they might see a lot of things differently, wouldn't they? I think you're right. I think you're very right about that. Yeah, obviously the Harry Reid move uh, to blow up the filibuster for non-Supreme Court nominations and all personnel nominations uh, backfired uh, quickly, just as Mitch McConnell and the Republicans said that it would. And then they also completely misplayed their hand on trying to filibuster Neil Gorsuch, which got the rule changed. If they had kept their powder dry on that and done it during the Kavanaugh process, uh, they might have actually stopped it. But it wasn't going to happen because they uh, decided they had just had to deny Neil Gorsuch, which they knew they couldn't given the votes. And so the filibuster blew up. Gorsuch got in anyway. Kavanaugh gets in. And it looks like this nominee will probably get in as well. So good job, Democrats. <laughs> now you know how it all plays out. Hi, I'm Sarah Carter. On every edition of the Sarah Carter podcast, I say we're taking back the story. And that's exactly what we have to do. Whether it's the Russia hoax, the relentless attacks on President Trump pretending Antifa doesn't exist, or covering up for the repressive Chinese government, the mainstream media isn't interested in the truth. It's up to us to uncover the truth and share it with others. Please join me in taking back the story on the Sarah Carter podcast. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about our crazy martini along the same lines, Jim. You got to give some of these Democrats a little bit of credit. At least they're going public with their allegiance to these crazy town ideas of court packing. Unlike the Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. Joe Biden went to Manitowoc, Wisconsin to give a speech to a largely empty room 
except for a few reporters. Uh, and then he did do a couple of local interviews, including with WBAY TV out of Green Bay, which I watched uh, growing up in northern Michigan. Uh, and so the question came up, you know, the people in your party are talking about adding justices to the Supreme Court if, uh, if this nomination goes through so close to an election. What do you think? Here's the response. If Trump's Supreme Court pick goes through, miraculously goes through, but you win the election, and let's say the Democrats then take over the Senate but maintain the House, would you consider adding more Supreme Court justices to the bench? It's a legitimate question, but let me tell you I'm not going to answer that question. Because it will shift all the focus. That's what he wants. He never wants to talk about the issue at hand. He always tries to change the subject. But let's say I answer that question. Then the whole debate's going to be, well, Biden said or didn't say. Biden said he would or wouldn't. That's going to, the, this, the discussion should be about why he is moving in a direction that's totally inconsistent with what the founders wanted. They're designed, the Constitution says designed, if voters get to pick the president who gets to make the pick and the Senate who gets to decide. So, Jim, uh, he won't release his list because uh, he says that's distracting and his uh, choice would just be pilloried for the next few weeks, which is probably true. But uh, still, it's an interesting response that he, that he wouldn't go public with anything. And now he won't even uh, comment uh, on whether or not he would uh, want to pack the court, even though during the primary he said accurately, I think, that he wouldn't want to do that because... Uh, Republicans would just get retaliation the next time they're in control, just like you said. So what do you make of Biden uh, essentially saying uh, he's holding his cards close to the vest now on this issue? Yeah, this is a really bad answer. And it's, it's bad in like multiple levels. You know, as you mentioned that, you know, comment back in July, no, I'm not prepared to go on and try to pack the court because we'll live through the day. Like that, that wasn't really squishy. <laughs> that was pretty clear. He didn't think it was a good idea. And we will live to rue that day. I mean, if you, you know, first of all, Mr. Vice President, I concur. Listen to me like five minutes ago. But the second thing that kind of jumps out about that is that you could say, you know, Mr. Vice President, would you consider adding more Supreme Court justice to the bench? Oh, that's a silly question. I'm not even going to get into that. Okay. Like, I, you know, like that would really be an accurate answer because, you know, there are Democrats who are calling for this. But okay, if, he, if, if Biden really thinks this is, you know, unthinkable, then you can give an answer indicating that it's unthinkable. He says it's a legitimate question. And then having concurred that it's a legitimate question, he refuses to answer. So what is Joe Biden's position on expanding the court? Is it yes? Is it no? Like I said, back in July, or has he changed his mind? My sneaking suspicion is that Biden doesn't actually want to do this, or at least to the extent that, you know, when he's awake, when he's, you know, actually out, of, you know, actually out on the trail or something, you know, I think it's not within his instincts. He's always been something of an institutionalist. He is part of the Democratic establishment. I think he recognizes all the headaches that would ensue if they actually went ahead with this. But the Democratic base is angry. They're, they're, they're all fired up. And so he, ha if he, you know, he doesn't want to be in the position of telling them things they don't want to hear which, by the way, should be a giant red flag for anybody who's right of center who wants to uh, vote for Biden. I, I, I get all the troubles with, with Trump. I, I, I get it. People in the comment section don't like it. I will keep laying out the problems with Trump. But don't fool yourself into thinking that Joe Biden is going to be this bulwark against the left wing of his party. Joe Biden does not want to antagonize the left wing of his party. Joe Biden wants to get along with the left wing of his party. And so if you're, we're lucky, he'll be a speed bump. 
If we're lucky, he will slow them down, but he's not going to stop them. He's certainly not going to push back against them. If you can't say, no, we're not packing the court. That's a terrible idea. It didn't work for FDR and it was such a bad idea. Nobody tried it. Nobody even discussed it seriously for decades. If you can't say that, you're really not going to stand up to the left wing of your party if you are elected. And again, this is a really, you know, the rest of the, the answer is word salad. It's a distraction. Well, every issue, every issue is a distraction from other issues, right? You just got to ask a legitimate question by your own words. And Biden says, I'm not going to tell you. Why should voters say, okay, that's fine. Trump will give you an answer. Trump, you know, you may not like the answer from Trump, but he's, you know, Trump, the problem with Trump is not figuring out what, you know, he's not getting him to talk. He does that. He does that pretty, quite a bit. What he said today may contradict what he said yesterday, or it may, you know, he may contradict what he said a moment ago. But Trump will answer the question. Biden's like, look, I have a position. I'm just not willing to let you know what it is. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. He's trying to, he's trying to run out the clock. And, uh, 2020 is not the year to try to run out the clock because stuff just keeps happening uh, to, to make you have to deal with stuff. Two thoughts on Biden before we exit for today, Jim. First of all, I've noticed this pattern. We've talked about it before, how uh, press lids get called on the Biden campaign at eight or nine in the morning and we're in the last few weeks of the campaign. But I've now noticed that on Friday, you know, he went to Minnesota, same day Trump did, and he looked pretty rough that night when he gave his brief statement on the passing of Justice Ginsburg. Then Saturday morning, lid called 8.30. Yesterday, he's in Wisconsin. Today, lid called except for private fundraisers at 8.30. So this is a guy I don't think who can handle two days of actual work, physical work, physical moving around in a row. And if Republicans are smart, they're going to make sure that he has to respond to something the day before or the day of a debate. And that could make a big difference in his performance on the stage. I was going to say, right as we started taping, Greg, someone put out on Twitter a calendar, uh, and they marked all the days in which the Biden campaign called a lid, meaning there were no further events before noon. Eight of the 22 days so far this month, including today, is one of them. Now, three of them are weekends. If you want to say we're not going to campaign as much on weekends because the country isn't paying as much attention, that's, that's fine. Okay, I'll, I'll give him that. There's a coronavirus on. He's ahead. He doesn't need to do as many. It's fine. But like eight out of 22? It's more than a third, guys. It's more than a third is really not doing anything during the day. That's a really troubling, you know, uh, trait in a guy who's trying to step into what is probably the most one of the most challenging jobs in the world. Yeah, absolutely right. Also, one other thing that keeps coming up in our comment section that I just want to address. Apparently, a lot of you are getting Biden campaign ads as you listen to the Three Martini Lunch. We are not putting the Biden ads in. We do not endorse the Biden campaign. Hopefully, from listening to this podcast, hopefully on a daily basis, you can tell we do not want Joe Biden to be president. Uh, what happens is, is that the podcast goes out to various platforms, entities, you know, companies, campaigns, they buy time, they buy spots with these platforms, and those get inserted uh, unbeknownst and uh, without any input from us. So if you don't hear Jim and I read the ads, we are not putting those in and we are certainly not endorsing them. So I just want to make that clear. Yeah. And, and Greg, should we clarify, very much by the transitive property, I don't know if you and I are getting, I mean, if, you go, if you do enough transitive properties, you and I are getting paid by the Biden campaign. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. No. If you hear us talking, then okay, yes, we have approved that ad. And as I put it, mentioned in the National Review Facebook page, every once in a while, there'll be an advertiser that Greg and I are like, eh, it's not for us. Not often, once in a while. Generally, it's not political ads. I've not seen any campaign ad come along. Boy, that'd be kind of a little awkward. I don't know if I'd be able to do that at National Review. But anyway, that's our advertising policy. If we're talking about it, you got the Jim and Greg, you know, thumbs up, seal of approval. If it's somebody else talking, they've just stuck it in there and hopefully we're getting some of the money. I don't know about you, Greg, the check clears. It's fine with me. 
Hey, that's, as I've said on social media, if the Biden campaign wants to blow money on the three martini lunch, we'll take it. Anyway, uh, that's probably a good time to tell you to go to gabby.com slash martini to uh, check your insurance rates. Just take a couple of minutes, see how much money you can save. Jim, we'll see you tomorrow. You know, it's just to balance out all the free advertising we've given to Irving Schmidlap. See you tomorrow, Greg. <laughs> Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch. Uh, we always love it. We're very grateful for a five-star rating and a kind review. Remember, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Have a great day, and we'll see you Wednesday on the Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit DanaRadio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.